Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next guest, Peter Kafka, has been making podcasts for a very long time. He has been the unmistakable voice of Recode Media for a long time, and you also did a recent podcast series on Netflix. Yeah, that's me. Hi. And no, sorry, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Anyway. <laughs> So I, I've really enjoyed your shows. What I what I love about it, and, and I kind of try to steal the idea when I'm kind of thinking about it, is this super relaxed style that can also be filled with some either really jarring moments or, or biting points. But it, you seem so relaxed with your guests that they'll accidentally let their guard down. Is that what you're going for? Yeah, that's that's the idea. Back in the days when you could meet people in person, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys are doing that in Australia. I always insisted that that the guests come to the office, even to the point where we would lose guests because they didn't want to travel to wherever the the podcast was recording. But I, the reason I like, I, mean, I love interviewing people, and and I really like podcasting at length is because you can sit with people, and even though they are there's a microphone in front of them, they know that it's being taped and it's going to go out, and sometimes there's a public relations person next to them. Mm-hmm. That if you talk to them for any length, it can feel like you're having a somewhat casual conversation. That's and that's sort of my my aspiration is that this is what it would sound like if we didn't have microphone. Oftentimes that's not the case, but that's that's my that's what I would like to get. Yeah, right. There's been a couple that have really st- stood out over the years. E- even actually, just your recent conversation with the Pandora guy. He's such a big dude, isn't he? Did you get to actually see him in real life? Oh, yeah. I, t- Tim, I've known for a very long time. I've wanted to talk to him. Just, I, you know, very often I'm interviewing people that I do know and have met in a previous life or, or at some point earlier in our in our careers with the hopes that that will make for a better conversation. And I don't know if this came across, but Tim was someone that I had met before Pandora was Pandora was the music genome project. And he was this nerd with this project that didn't really make any sense. And I'd followed him over the years and sort of as Pandora got bigger, we spoke less. And so I was hoping it would be sort of a bit of a relaxed conversation. And, and the truth was it was, you know, it wasn't like the two of us sitting in a car talking. He had a business he wanted to promote, but yeah. And then of course, as soon as we got off the microphone, he said, Oh, there was a thing I didn't tell you that would have been much more interesting, which often happens with these podcasts. <laughs> the mic, the mic goes off and then someone says, okay, now I can tell you what I really think. Yeah. My, my editor has started going off at me for that because quite often, as soon as the thing ends, I start asking all these nerdy questions and that's the stuff he loves. So he's like, keep it in, keep it in. So there you go. Yeah. Oftentimes it's the person knows full well that that stuff shouldn't be on mic. They don't want it to be on microphone. So it wouldn't yeah, matter yeah. what kind of question I asked and they wouldn't answer it until they're, until they're not being recorded. Onto the media. Obviously, we've had a pretty big week, last couple of weeks down here in Australia. Yeah. It started as the media code law and it was very boring in this country. And then suddenly it became the Facebook ban and everyone cared. Yeah, it's been on my radar for a while. So I've both been watching it, but also been a little confused by it. And because I've been working on some other projects, I haven't paid as close attention this week as I 
as I wanted to, but I but I have been following both Google and Facebook sort of squaring off against your regulators and and also Rupert Murdoch for six months or so. I think this has been going on for, and it seemed pretty clear to me that Facebook was going to dig in. I, I was, um, I, if you, if I had to bet, I probably would have bet that it worked out the way it worked out, which is that Facebook was going to dig in and Google would capitulate earlier. But yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And, and, you know, the, the stakes for, you know, the way I'm viewing it beyond is beyond Australia, right? It was, what does this mean for mm. Facebook and Google and every other country? And I think that's very much how Facebook and Google are thinking about it. Yeah, and no, I totally get that. And and it's been interesting, I, I think, just seeing the cultural differences in the way that uh, Australians and Americans have reported on it. Obviously, some of the Australian press have a lot to to gain if the code goes through. So, of course, they're going to be writing positively. It's It's been fascinating. I think that, once again, there have been so many things in the last year that have really shown a difference between our cultures. And I think that was another one of those moments. Yeah, I mean, part of it for me is uh, a frustration, and I guess it's something I could solve with actual work. It's just not understanding the the mechanisms of Australian lawmaking. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll read about you know this commission or that code, and it's unclear to me what that means. I'm sure there's versions of that if you're following American politics and law, but I just also assume that uh, somewhat lazily that, that you guys are exposed to so much more uh, American politics, whether you like it or not, that you've got a better sense of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it was it was hard for me to sort of figure out, uh, and I would keep calling people up saying, "All right, well, when." When will this next deadline actually happen? And would keep getting pushed off. And it was unclear to me sort of what a, you know, if you if you follow, if you're paying attention to American politics, but not that closely, you'll see someone's introduced a law or introduced a bill. And unless you kind of are really following it, you, you won't understand whether that thing is a thing that is actually going to happen mm-hmm. or if it's just basically an extended press release. So for a while, it was unclear to me sort of what was actually happening here. But from the people I talked to at Facebook and Google, they seemed quite clear that, that it was very serious. Uh, they were treating it seriously. It was not just a, a theoretical exercise. Yeah. It, it's for me, I think a lot of the reason people got so angry at Facebook is uh, if it had come straight from the, the government, then it would have been probably not that popular. Uh, but because it came from the ACCC, which is, yeah, like you said, one of the gov- governing bodies here that, you know, no, no uh, American podcaster should have to ever think about uh, because it came from them. They are a very well respected organization. And I think that it was a, it was always going to be a PR battle and, and people just like uh, the ACCC better and, and think Facebook are jerks. Yeah, it's funny. The people at Facebook really don't draw any distinction between the ACCC and, and Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And their contention is that they are they were essentially negotiating with Rupert Murdoch. Oh, totally. Through yeah, this yeah, yeah. Uh, through this Australian agency, and so and they were frustrated that it wasn't being portrayed that way. And yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's a, it's a naughty thing. What you you know, if you if you zoom back, pull back, what you see is for years and years and years, news publishers saying, "Hey, Facebook or Google or really Google and then Facebook." you're hurting our business, you should do something about that. And for a long time, them being told, go pound sand or whatever your Australian version of that (laughs) metaphor is, you know, we're giving you traffic, that should be enough. And over time, Facebook and Google gradually giving very small on their ends, but increasingly larger concessions to the point where they've gotten to the point over the last couple of years through some combination of, I think, them thinking it's the right thing to do. And then very clearly, they think it's the politically right thing to do saying, all right, New York Times and Wall Street Journal and various other people, we we will give you some money. Here's a check for your content. This is what you said you want. We were giving you traffic. You didn't want that. Now we're going to give you a check. 
And you can't possibly complain about that. And Facebook and Google, as your as your listeners know, make billions and billions of dollars. They can write lots of those checks. And that is the way that they would prefer to do it, which is how much will it take for you to shut up? Yeah. yeah. And so I that is what I think both of them want to do in Australia and every other country. It's just a matter of can they basically negotiate directly with the news organizations and write some of them checks of varying size, or are they going to have to you know, go through some sort of arbitration, which scares them? Mm. Yeah, and obviously we're a, a tiny market in the, in the grand scheme of things, but precedent they set down here must terrify them. Yeah, the, and, and everyone else is lining up. And, and again, you, you would have to go through each country and explain to me how politically how this will happen. I think it's you know, le- very unlikely to, happen, to have sort of a version of this in the U.S. There's no version of the ACCC in the U.S. There's just state law and federal law. But that clearly, you know, and it, there's also a version of this that Google and Facebook pine for. And you see them talking about it publicly, which is just give us a set of global regulations mm-hmm. about anything, just what, whether it's hate speech or how we moderate content, or how we're going to compensate publishers. Just give us a set of rules that we can follow, that we can say we're following. We'll pay you money, and then we can go about our business. And it would be simpler for them. And then also, you know, they don't say this part out loud usually, but it also is really a competitive advantage to them because whatever rules they have to play by, their competitors have to play by, except they're much better funded. So even when Facebook, I'm just rambling here, but when Facebook got a five billion, <laughs> <I like> it. <laughs> got a got a five billion dollar fine, was it over the Cambridge Analytica scandal and privacy issues? And that was like seven ha- seconds of their their earnings day. Yeah, and they're happy to do it. And in, in theory, the they uh, agreed in that settlement to a whole new set of lawyers and regulatory hoops they've got to jump through. But you know. Facebook can hire all the lawyers it needs to, and it can add all the layers of, of, of regulation it needs to. It's, it's fine with that. Uh, it just wants to sort of get it off its plate. Mm. Yeah, and, and obviously our media code was far from perfect, but it, it speaks to a bigger issue, obviously, and you've just talked about it there, that Peter Kafka, you've been re- writing about media for God knows how long and talking about it for just as long. A long time. Fix the media for me. Give me one business model that you think the bigger publishers can go to. Well, I mean, the, I mean the the current the current conventional wisdom is that advertising is bad, and having people pay for their news or anything else directly is better because it aligns the people who make the content with the people who are consuming the content. And I think that works for lots of different kinds of products, but it can't work for everything. And if you do that, you're going to have if you go all, if you follow that all the way, you're basically going to have a very small group of people getting lots and lots of access to lots of information, entertainment, and all kinds of other content. I hate saying content, mm-hmm. and but everyone else is going to get very little. And I happen to work for an ads mostly ad supported business, and and my podcasting is ad supported, so I'm a little biased here. But I do think there's a way to sort of have some combination of of direct contributions from people who consume content and 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 the advertisers who want to reach them that makes it healthier. So that's a long-winded way of saying I think some combination of advertising and subscriptions is is a pretty good model. And you know, I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this. I think at least in America, but I assume most other places where that really doesn't work is for small middle you know, basically local news. Mm-hmm. That there are not enough people in medium-sized cities, even decent-sized cities and small towns, who are willing to pay to have news gathered and reported and edited and, and disseminated. And there's not enough advertisers who want to reach those people. And what you're just seeing is just uh, the, the term is a news desert. 
where you just have news organizations just literally going out of business or, you know, being whittled down to essentially nothing. And people have been trying to solve that problem. That's a problem I'm very concerned about more than, you know, the, how the New York Times is going to do because they're going to do fine. Yeah. I, I mean, the New York Times uh, has a great uh, business model and it's doing very well, but it also has just an un- unbeatable brand. Like I, I subscribe to the New York Times and I live in Melbourne. It's just one of those things. Yeah, that's their plan. Yeah, and by the way, you know, we, we say the New York Times is a great business model and they're, they're killing it, but I am old enough that, that I remember not very long ago, 2010-ish, where it was reasonable to speculate about whether the New York Times was going to survive. Mm-hmm. They were going to, they were, they were on the edge of, you know, depending on who you listen to, they were on the edge of bankruptcy and they did have to take a very high interest loan to survive. And, and it wasn't clear at all that they were going to have this model that was going to work and have people in Melbourne paying subscription fees for them. So, you know, a way of saying that, that, you know, even people who are paid to sort of think about the future often get it wrong. So when you're thinking about the difference to the industry now to when you first started reporting overall, is it a, is it a better place? I mean, there are success stories, like we just said, of the New York Times. Uh, There's some really fascinating stuff happening in podcasting where independent voices that aren't completely crazy get elevated. And then there's the decimation of local news, like you said. Like, when you balance it all out, what do you think of the the current media landscape? The the pros and cons are the thing I think about all the time. I think about, you know, how bad it is that there are, you know, in many places no longer local newspapers or equivalents of them and that nothing has filled their place. And then I think of growing up in the Midwest, in the U.S., and, you know, we we actually were kind of fancy. We had a New York Times delivered to us once a week, and then we had our local paper. But that was it, right? If you wanted to get any other information – you were out of luck unless it was on the evening news and the idea that the, you know, the internet could deliver to you, you know, a world of information for very little effort and often little cost is great. It, that's has panned out the way the optimist thought and also the way that it's allowed you to pursue niche interests and, and podcasting is a great version of that. That's all great. And then we also know the downside of, of having Facebook's and Google's designed to spread any kind of information, including disinformation and misinformation very easily um, without human intervention, mm-hmm. has all the obvious downsides. So it's a mixed bag. We're stuck with it. I, st- I think if I had to guess, we're probably better off still, though. I think there's more. I think we're better off having more information than less. I think, yeah, I, I think it's media literate people are better off because they, they know where to find the, the proper sources and they experience just a wealth of of new ways of consuming news. If you were giving advice to young journalists today, would you recommend journalism as a career if someone younger asked you? I don't know about a career, but the barrier to entry is non-existent. You can just start typing Mm -hmm. or talking immediately. Think about that a lot. Um, about sort of, you know, literally anyone can start a Twitter account or uh, whatever blogging software you want to use or create your own podcast. It's just a click away. It's very likely that no one is going to hear you or read what you made or look at your photo, but they might. And, and, and you can practice for free in a way that, you, again, you couldn't. You have access to printing presses and, 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 and distribution outlets that just didn't exist um, back in my day. So that's great. So you don't have those gatekeepers, which means you can try a lot of stuff. It means in theory you don't have to move to a place like New York to go work in that industry. Um, although it's pretty interesting, you still have a large concentration of people gathered in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York who want to do media. And I'm sure you have versions of that in Australia. But, you know, as we just spent a whole year working from home and sort of proving the point that 
if you want to, you can certainly do this work remotely. So I would certainly go try to do it. I would not wait for someone to give you a job. If there's something you're interested in writing about, reporting on, I would suggest that you go start doing that. You will probably not be very good at it when you start, and you will get better at it over time. And ideally, you'll find people to collaborate with and mentor, and then eventually you should try to get paid to do it because it's a different level, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. It is. This podcast right now is in that really freaking annoying place where its numbers are going up and it's doing okay, but it's not anything I could live off. Yeah. And that's just the hardest bit to kind of break through, I reckon, when – because – and. And it's the same thing. It's like I've, I listened back to the first episode and I'm so fucking embarrassed of some of the way that I was holding back my personality. And I feel I've gotten a little bit better at that, um, listening to just a shit ton of other people's podcasts and, and figuring out, not, not trying to copy them, but just my conversation sounds better when I'm not trying to stumble over myself. Yeah. And also just how many, how many, how many episodes are you in? How many years in are you now? Uh, well, I, I had my first podcast in 2007, uh, but then I took a couple of years off because I had kids. So Yeah, so um, there you go. So 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 you got a decade-ish of, uh, of experience, which is great, right? And that's great. I mean, there is, there is a, and I have a version of this too, where you, you work on something for a while and you kind of like it, but it's not where you want it to be. And people kind of like it, but you'd like more people to to listen to it or read it or whatever it is. And so you have that age old question of, of, do I, is what I'm doing working? Is it good? Is it something that I can get in front of more people? I'd like that. Or, or, or is the number of people who are consuming what I'm doing, the market? And, and, you know, if I want it to be bigger, do I have to make something else? Mm-hmm. And there aren't good answers for that. I mean, I do think it is why you see a lot of my colleagues, including my former coworkers, going to the New York Times because you go to the New York Times and your reach increases, you know, I don't know if it's exponentially, but, but you know, huge increase in, in the number of people who are going to um, consume the stuff that you're making, the kind of people who are going to consume the stuff that you're making. I think... When I started getting into digital media, you know, sort of Napster era, 2000-ish, there was a lot of ideology around the idea that, that digital media was going to usurp the conventional gatekeepers. And you, people keep having that conversation. If it's a new one, it's the you know, whole clubhouse conversation right now. Um, <laughs> I was going to say be an end runner on the, the New York Times. But yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, but, you know. The New York Times also shows you that there's a in the 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 attraction of talent there, and they're not paying people the most money ever to work there. People are working there because they want their work to have impact and reach. And so, anyway, it's a it's a long way of saying you. I think a lot of people get to this point where you're sort of having that question: like, should I keep doing what I'm doing? Should I change it? Should I do it somewhere else? Throwing the bit of Ira Glass cliche thing of him saying that the, the problem is you've got good taste, so you know your work could be way better. Nobody uh, tells people who are beginners, and I really wish somebody had told this to me, is that um, all of us who do creative work, like, you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's a gap, that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's, it's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste... The thing that got you into the game, your, your taste is still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You know what I mean? A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I would just like say to you with all my heart is that m- most everybody I know 
who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short. It didn't have this special thing that we wanted it to have. And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. Because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to ca catch up and close that gap. And your, the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. In my case, like I, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. It takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while. And you just have to fight your way through that. Okay? Yeah, and you know, and digital media, you know, is is um, and podcasting doesn't have very much of this because it's just kind of a download number. But you know, there's so much in digital media where they can tell you, you know, exactly um, how much of your, your story they consumed. Um, they can show you, you know, how much of it, what people looked at on a page, and in very microscopic detail. And sometimes that's super useful because you get feedback about what what people are doing, how they're consuming your work, and sometimes it's a little paralyzing. You're trying to think, oh, how could I increase my numbers here five percent? Could I, <laughs> you know, if I uh, the people are searching for this 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 information, should I write news stories based on Google search? What do you do? Podcasting. I, I, I was I, chatting to someone just the other day about yeah. this for an earlier episode, and they all work in like those big shiny new places, and I work for a very old newspaper and and i've never seen any of my traffic and when i said that they freaked out they were like what the hell surely you you know you check the numbers all the time and it's like like i i open up the the podcast download numbers at the end of each week and each week they're higher and i that makes me happy but um Great. yeah I, I think if i if i studied those numbers i would literally go insane yeah, I think the podcasting numbers are so crude and can't really tell you. And also, again, the the number of people who listen to podcasts is increasing every day, so your numbers should go up. If you're going down, it's a problem. I'd be very interested in like hearing from a producer who could say, "Look, we, you know, you have five years of Recode Media's, and we've gone through, and everyone's dropping off at minute thirty-two. Mm. You know, you're rambling conversations. Let's let's tighten it up." And and I would take that serious. I'm not sure I would do it, but I would certainly think about it. When it comes to writing stories now, in part because my job is not dependent on sort of the traffic I bring in, at least for the moment, I just uh, I doggedly do not look at those. And you can kind of tell, too. You have a sense of when you wrote something good and if people are responding to it. And a lot of times it has to do with whether it's good or not. And sometimes it has to do with whether it got picked up by Google News or Apple News or mm -mm. Facebook distributed. Oh, totally. and, yeah, and, yeah. You can, you can't, and you can try to game some of that, but there's a limit to that. And don't get me wrong, I do go over the stats and pull my hair out at certain days, but I, I, I limit those days again for my own mental health. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, when, when I first started listening to you, it sounded like, I feel like I came to the show a bit late, maybe two years ago. Uh-huh. And 
you had this incredible relaxed swagger. So I assumed you've been doing it for this, this for a very long time. Have you always just been that relaxed in front of a mic, I guess? I probably have not, but I started off, first of all, I'm, I am old, so I have a little bit of like <laughs> you do mention done this that quite before. a bit. <laughs> I started off in writing and then started interviewing people on stage for various employers. And then when I went uh, worked at All Things D with Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher, sort of their they had a website, but the main point of their business was they had this annual conference where they brought Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos and did all these heavy hitter interviews. And I thought, oh, that's that's something I want to do and tried to figure out how I could build a career where I could talk to people on stage. And so for, I spent a bunch of years having those conversations and getting better at those. And those, I definitely took me a long time to get better at those. And then, so when podcasting came up, I said, Oh, I'm already doing, you know, half hour interviews with people on, with important people on stages. I'll just move that over to podcasting. And so I think my initial podcast probably sounded more like me interviewing someone on stage. And I've since sort of figured out, all right, you know, let's try to make it sound more like, and, and let's, it's a different kind of interviewing, pretty similar, but but slightly different. Yeah. I've, I've heard some people who, who came across from like professional TV studios really struggled for the first, like they, they might record six or seven episodes that they don't release because they really struggled with trying to get that new persona that is... A persona when you're speaking only to someone's ear holes, you know, it's it's such a very different thing than yeah. someone who, who might just stumble across your medium. Although I, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that there are rules still. I mean, it's still a, it's such a new mm. medium and journalists I like a lot, Dan Premack for Axios, and he's got a newsletter and he's done very well. And he has a, I can't remember what the podcast is called now, but his, the whole thing about Axios is they do they turn into brevity. Mm-hmm. So he interviews lots of people that I w- uh, also interview or would like to interview. And his whole thing is it's done in 10 or 15 minutes and he's asking it sounds more like a cnbc interview mm. you know it's mm. probably three or four times the, the length of a standard tv interview but it's 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 that and you know you kind of get the same information in many cases and i think oh that's that's very different than what i do it's just rambling and pauses and circuitous and i don't think one is better than the other i like i like both those things and if someone you know i could also imagine a version where my current podcast and all its shaggy form gets turned into something else and you know as long as it's as long as it's entertaining and interesting and honest then i'm, I'm all for it well i mean the the feel of the netflix miniseries was very different uh there, yes. there was uh, you could feel the the very tight script and there must have been a lot of editing and so much more so so how was that experience after after years of such a relaxed kind of uh yeah vibe it was great. I, I loved it. I loved I loved doing it. It was a completely new format for me. It's great to be able to try something brand new and sort of mid-career. It was collaborative. I'm generally, you know, all my writing is, you know, on my own generally. And in the old days before I had an editor, I just hit publish and it would go out. And in the podcast, like, I work with a, a great producer and, and, and an engineer, but it's it's I drive most of it. And this was with a group of people figuring out a script. And then the interviews... It was funny. I had a producer that I worked with. He said, "This is not going to be like a Recode Media interview, Peter. You're, you know, you can't just interrupt people all the time." I said, I, "I get it. You know, we want them to go on at length so we can pull clips of what they said." But on the other hand, it was very interesting because I watched because I basically still did a Recode Media interview when I had enough time to talk with someone. I just gave them, I interrupted them less, and I had a sort of sense of what I wanted them to talk about. But I also wanted to 
leave room for them to say something interesting and unexpected. But periodically, I would I would do the interview. My producer would be there, and then he would say, "I said, so I would say, Zach, Zach will never listen to this, but even if he did, it's fine." He, he's, do you want to ask any questions? He'd say, "Yes, I do." And sometimes he would ask them to say something they had already said because he wanted them to say it with a different intonation or hadn't quite gotten it the way he wanted it. Mm. And if you've ever been interviewed on TV or sometimes they'll do that, they'll ask you to like say something again. And, you know, everyone was generally for it. Uh, and I understood mechanically what it was, but I thought it was pretty funny because I thought, I don't know why you would want to get someone to say something again when they've already said it once. Cause the first time I said it was the, truthful way but it turns out there's a lot of that i mean when you listen to the daily those it takes them it's a, 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 my understanding is you know when they bring in their reporters to talk about whatever they're working on and you hear them for 15 minutes that's that's two hours plus of taping yeah and that's yeah. them trying out different stuff and trying out different ideas and trying out different ways of saying it yeah i mean what this american life throws away 80 percent of its stories or yeah some kind of crazy burn rate like that like that's that's what a team takes to make yeah, and we I'm just we're so I just finished uh, another episode uh there's we just we're doing a series on Google. And mm-hmm. I'm 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 working on one episode of that which is on YouTube which is out next week and we just finished it. Oh cool. And same thing, you know, I interviewed people for hours and we're taking a line of dialogue from them which I'm used to <laughs> doing for a print story. I think they'll be disappointed in the podcast though cuz they'll, they'll expect that there was more out of it. But it's great. And it's great and that I'm in that I'm working with a different group of people but it's a similar idea and I mean, I hope my enthusiasm for it comes through. It really is fun to get to try not only a different product, but just a different mode of working mm-hmm. um, has been has been really refreshing and invigorating for me. Uh, I, I would highly recommend it. Uh, can you tell the good people at home the, the story of what Blockbuster had that they let go of? That's how I always recommend people listen to the series. Yeah, people love that episode, too. It's great. There's a bit of like partly because it's a great story and partly there's nostalgia. But in the old days, if you wanted to watch a movie and you didn't see it in the movie theater, you could go to Blockbuster in America and rent a video cassette and eventually DVDs. And you probably didn't get the DVD or cassette that you wanted, but you, and you would probably get a big late fee. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, that's how they made all their money. And anyway, they owned they owned home video. And then Netflix showed up with this really clunky, nerdy way of delivering DVDs to your house. Which in a lot, it still blew my mind. Yeah. Like, like, like when, when I was visiting America and I was visiting a mate there and he said, Hey, hey, what do you want to watch tomorrow? Cause we'd been in like film school and stuff in the, in years ago. And so we were big film nerds. And I was like, what do you mean tomorrow? Like you live in the sticks. Um, and, uh, yeah, then a DVD came in and it blew my mind cause that's, yeah. So that's, and group. that was their main appeal early on was sort of, you had to be a nerd period cause you had to like you know, figure out how to get this thing over the internet uh, mm-hmm. delivered to you. But also Netflix, both because they knew who their audience was and also they knew they weren't going to, what, what you went to Blockbuster for was whatever the big Tom Cruise movie that was out. Yeah, 48 copies of it. Six months ago. Yeah, and they, and they knew to get all those copies and you would probably get a copy of that. And so the Netflix didn't need to replicate that. But for you and me, we could get, you know, however many different versions of Apocalypse Now and all this stuff. And they figured out how to stock enough of that stuff and deliver it to you. And I'm telling the whole story here. But the, the, the short of <laughs> Blockbuster, Blockbuster figured out that Netflix was a competitor for them and eventually started to compete with them and then sort of stopped competing with them right at the moment where they had Netflix on the run. Yeah. And if they pushed it a little further, oh, the, the Netflix wouldn't great. be here. 
Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell your editors the tension in that is great. When I mean, for, even though you know how the story played out in the end, this, there are so many nostalgia moments in that episode because there's the sound of the blockbusters. There's yeah, yeah the as soon as like I was driving somewhere and as soon as she said late fees, I almost drove off the road because I'd forgotten the rage I had on late fees. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's great. It's a uh, blockbuster had one of those pre-internet businesses that was great for Blockbuster and kind of crappy for consumers. So at the time, you probably didn't, you know, no one was very fond of Blockbuster. Now it's nostalgic because it's not here anymore and it makes you think of things in your past. And so, and I think, uh, but the interesting thing to me was that you would think, oh, this is a story of a big old pre-internet company that gets disrupted by this nimble challenger. Mm. And that is partially true. But it's also true that Blockbuster for a long time was ready to snuff out Netflix and would have done it successfully, except it then shot itself in the foot. And that to me is that the surprise of a story like that is what makes it work. Yeah. And so over the years, who has been the hardest person to get on the show or is, is it, do you no longer have those issues of trying to book someone? Oh no, I'm constantly um, fighting to, to book someone and it gets harder right? Because there are more outlets. There was a period where no one would come on a podcast. They didn't know what a podcast was. Mm. And then I, you know, then people sort of started to get the idea and why they might want to come on. And now they're, everyone's got a podcast. So it's now much harder. There's just much more competition. You know, there's a group of digital media people that pay attention to me. And so they generally want to come on and they've heard their peers come on, which is great. Some of the bigger company CEOs are difficult, but frankly, they're not always that great to talk to. Because mm. they don't get what they are by being loose and casual and, and saying interesting things. I found uh, directors are great right now. They're they're great talkers. They have the gift to gab. They usually um, have interesting cultural perspective, but also um, from my from my interest, they also have a good sense of how the business is changing, mm-hmm. of making entertainment. So I have a lot of them on right now. Uh, and and what are some of the the highlights recently of of those conversations? The the favorite one I did recently it was also a personal one because this was someone I had worked with twenty years ago when we were both fact checkers at Forbes mm-hmm. uh, magazine, and I knew him a little bit, and he was a nice guy. And and after that, we went different ways and hadn't been in touch except that you know ambient Facebook way. But it turns out he has turned himself into a Hollywood screenwriter. And if it hadn't made a movie until until late last year, and then last year, late last year, he had two major movies come out. One is uh, uh, Soul, the Pixar movie, mm-hmm. which he wrote, and then uh, he also has a movie called One Night in Miami, which is on Amazon. I'm assuming you guys can get that there. Yep, very different movies, very different products, and it was great because it was all questions I would have asked anyone, but it's also someone who I had a relationship with 20 years ago, so we had a little bit of built in rapport and then he's just an interesting thoughtful guy he's a black american at a time when it's interesting to hear a black american talk about making culture at sort of the very highest level and, mm-hmm. and, and for a biggest audience so there was a lot in that interview and um it's kind of my platonic ideal of, of that interview one of the ones that stands out for me i think there were the writers or maybe directors because uh, they do have the gift of the gab mm-hmm. uh on who were part of wolverine logan and it was, it's just such a, like, I've not even seen that movie. Scott Frank. Yeah. Scott Frank. Yeah. I've not seen that movie and I've listened to that a bunch of times because it's just like, I find the, how that's, how that R-rated uh, comic book movie got made far more entertaining than the, what the actual movie would be. 
Yeah, he's 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 an interesting guy. And we I clicked with him right away and then he works with Steven Soderbergh a lot. And so we did another interview where he brought Steven Soderbergh to my office and we all talked together and that was very exciting. And then sometime this summer, publicists who work on his behalf say, Oh, Scott Frank has this new show. It's on Netflix, it's about chess. Do you want to have him come on? I thought, oh, Scott's great, but I've had him on a couple times. I don't want to keep bringing the same people back. And I didn't, you know, I don't want to have a show about chess. And then, of course, that becomes <laughs> a giant international hit. And I went and emailed him and said, would you like to come talk? And he did. And we had another great conversation. And that was one where, you know, I was kicking myself for not doing it earlier. But it was one of those things where he's great to talk to. We got to talk about what it's like to make a Netflix show. And also because when you make a giant Netflix hit, just the audience that wants to hear about that is so much bigger than a normal show. And so that was fun to do as well. That that totally makes sense to me. And I've, I've had those moments myself because you just, it, I, I think the way we have kind of gotten used to consuming media now is just everything is on demand, like podcasting and Netflix, of course, this is not a, um, you know, original thought by any means, but it's just that, you know, one of my favorite podcasts is a show that I'm routinely eight, 12 episodes behind just because, and then I'll have a day where I can finally catch up. Cause you know, yeah. that's, that's the kind of show that I want to pay more attention to or something. And so, yeah, it's, it's really weird. Like with the, the, the bloody chess show, that's how it was uh, described to me. It was just uh, a, an old friend sent an SMS saying, fine, I watched it. You should watch the bloody chess show. Uh, and, and that was like four weeks later. And yeah, I was like, oh, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> this is why the rest of the world pays attention to stuff like this. Yeah. Now, just because it was popular doesn't mean it's, you know, I, I, I watched a half an episode of uh, Tiger King and I got it and I don't want to know any more about it. Mm. It's, it's fine. I will say, you know, the pandemic has everyone's working from home. And so, you know, everyone's much more accessible. Mm hmm. To put up with, you know, various kinds of audio quality because not everyone is set up to do a podcast at home, but you know, they definitely have the time. And so, everyone, <laughs> every you could, it's my, you know, it's uh, you don't have to worry about getting to their office or vice versa or any of that. Uh, so when you can finally do interviews in person, are you going to immediately go back to that? Yeah, I have been thinking a lot about that. I mean, obviously, travel is still going to be restricted and people are going to be, you know, I'm assuming, you know it'll be harder to get them to come down to lower Manhattan to the Vox office um, than it would have been, but I will try to do as many in person as I can. But I think the idea that I will not talk with someone um, remotely is going to go out the window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, yeah. Once again, yeah, there was a guy down here who was very famous for that exact policy of he would not do interviews unless they were in the studio. Uh, and uh, it's been fascinating hearing how he talks about the way he is, he's, production mindset has changed now. Uh, is there anything that you've found helps break down that ice between two empty Zoom screens or even two disheveled Zoom screens or whatever the... Uh... No, I wish I wish, I wish, wish I did. I mean, I, every time one of these, because usually it's someone who, do, you know, I'm doing at least one of these a week, but the person I'm talking to doesn't do as many. And I find, every, you know, I keep going back and forth, like, should I have the camera on so we can at least see each other? And communicate that way. Mm -hmm. Is it better if we take it off? Then we, we're just more of a natural phone conversation. And I, I did an interview today, and I interrupted the person I was talking to multiple times. And you know, the fifth or sixth time it happened, it was just <laughs> it was awkward. So no, I don't have any <laughs> tips. I wish I did. If you haven't, do you have any you can share with me? None at all. None at all. And I've gone through 
all of those same things of like, the only reason my camera's off today is my, my one-year-old or two-year-old now literally punched me in the face the other day. So you got a shiner. Yeah, I got a shiner, but that, um, he's adorable. So that's okay. But strong kid. Yeah. Yeah. But I've just been kind of going back and forth between testing everything. Like you said, there are no kind of rules at the moment. So I think it, any, anything that, uh, you spend way too much time on at this stage is probably a bit silly. Like we're, we're it's a good time to experiment. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting, t- I'm talking to you sitting cross-legged on the floor of my bedroom, mm-hmm. which is where I discovered it sounds best. Um, I think mostly because there's a lot of laundry that hasn't got put away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, people, you know, you see people with the with the with the, the special lighting and all this, and and uh, yeah, I'm just looking at some laundry because um, that seems to work pretty well for me. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to move my uh, computer set up into the laundry. Peter, can you tell the good folks at home your podcasts? Uh, sure, Recode Media is my, my weekly my weekly production. And then I've also worked on a series we have called Land of the Giants. We've done a series on Amazon, Netflix. Google One is in progress. So you can hear the first two episodes now. And there's more to come. And uh, we have more fascinating big tech companies to tell you about in the future. Well, thank you so much for your time, mate. Thanks. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 